Good evening, everyone. We're glad you're here. Thank you for coming. You open your Bibles to Haggai chapter 2, please. We're going to be looking at the first nine verses, and here's what they say. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land. Take courage, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of all nations and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book of Haggai. We thank you for the practicality of it. We're especially grateful for the first nine verses of this second chapter. We pray your blessing on our time tonight. Thank you for people who've taken time out of their lives to be here. We pray you bless them. In Jesus' name, amen. Not long ago, someone told me I have a hard time pledging allegiance to this country anymore because it's not the same country it used to be anymore. We're living in a time when most people are saying about this country, it's just not what it used to be. It isn't the same. The country seems to have lost its luster and loyalty and patriotism. In fact, just recently there was a person who was talking about how things were in this country, how they used to be when he fought for it, and how they are now, and he was actually shedding tears. And most people don't know what to do, they don't know what to think, and that's where a book like Haggai becomes such a critical book. The truth is, we need this book of Haggai right here, we need it right now. You see, when Haggai was written, there were people who had seen the good times. There were people who had seen the glory days of the nation. They're gone. The temple wasn't even standing in the capacity that it should have been standing. The people could not worship like they used to worship. It was depressing. And it was in that specific context where God raised up Haggai and gave him a message to take the people of God, and the same message he gave to the people of God then is what we need now. When God's people have seen a major deterioration of their nation, they need to courageously keep their focus on God and his word, for this will be the key to God blessing them. Back when we were in school, we were given a syllabus, and I was talking with some of our students that are going to college and asked if they had received any of their syllabuses yet, and one told me, no, they haven't. But in that syllabus, there was a breakdown of what was going to happen in every class period, plus there was a project that we were required to complete. 
And no matter what we did, you could not expect a good grade if you didn't complete the project. Well, God has basically given every single believer in Christ a specific assignment. We have different gifts. We have different ministries. We have different opportunities. But the syllabus that we all have is the written word of God. And if we don't seek to understand it and apply it, he's not going to bless us. On the other hand, if we do, we can experience the blessings of God at a great level regardless of what's happening around us. Now, we saw in the first verse of chapter 1 in the book of Haggai that the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the first day of the sixth month. And that word challenged the people. You need to get your focus off yourself. You need to get your focus off your own home and you need to get it back on God. When we come to the first verse of chapter 2, we see that the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 21st day of the seventh month. Now that's important. The seventh month was a significant month when it came to the temple. You see, the temple of Solomon was first dedicated in the seventh month. So this would have been a historic month to this rebuilding assignment, that seventh month. It did have a major historical connection to the temple in Jerusalem. And by observing these dates, we can precisely conclude that this second message was given less than two full months after the first message, if we assume we're operating on a Jewish calendar of 30-day-per-month calendar, we could say that this message came approximately 51 days after the first message, or 27 days after chapter 1, verse 15, where God said, get to work. Now, in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet. And I am convinced, ladies and gentlemen, that God always has his man for his time to speak his truth at just the right time. This is true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. He has gifted men. He raises up. Their job is to communicate accurately the will and word of God. That's their responsibility. And in this case, it was Haggai, and it was his assignment to do that. God's word came to Haggai, and God gave Haggai nine specific messages. These are precise messages that he wanted him to proclaim. First of all, Haggai was to speak directly to Zerubbabel. Verse 2 says, speak now to Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel was the governor or the political leader of the nation. He was the son of Shealtiel. That puts him in the Davidic line He was the major political governor and leader who was specifically given this message from God. He had been put in charge of the people returning to Israel by the Persians. So he was one who had a political connection to both Persia and Israel. And Haggai had the responsibility to preach directly to him. Because I don't care who the leader is and how powerful the leader may be, the fact of the matter is he needs to hear the truth of God. No matter how prestigious or powerful one may be, they need to hear the word of God, whether it be a president or a prime minister. That's what a politician needs to hear. There's an interesting story in history that I remember from church history about the preacher Peter Cartwright. Peter Cartwright was a circuit-riding revivalist in Kentucky in the South in the 1800s. He wasn't well-trained theologically, but he did love the Lord. And he was preaching in a church one Sunday, and he was told that President Andrew Jackson would be in attendance. Well, some of the leaders of the church told Peter Cartwright, hey, tone it down. Choose your words carefully. Don't say anything controversial or offensive. You have the President of the United States here. And as the story goes, Cartwright stood to speak, and he said this, I understand Andrew Jackson is here. 
Somebody asked me to guard my remarks. Well, Andrew Jackson, you will go to hell if you don't repent. Well, the people were shocked, and after the service, President Andrew Jackson shook the hand of Peter Cartwright, and he said, Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I would whip the world. But it doesn't matter how big the person, it doesn't matter who the political leader is, what that leader needs is the word of God. He needs to be confronted with the word of God. So God tells Haggai, you speak directly to Zerubbabel. Secondly, speak to Joshua. Now, Joshua was the high priest. He's the spiritual leader of the nation. He was a major spiritual leader, and he specifically was given this message from God. You know, sometimes ministers and religious leaders begin to think they've outgrown the need to carefully study the scriptures. They've somehow arrived at a higher level where they need to continue to work to understand the Word of God. But no matter who the religious leader is, he's not too big to understand, I need the Word of God. Billy Graham once said one of his great regrets was he didn't study more. In fact, Billy Graham said, if I had it to do all over again, I would preach less and study more. It doesn't matter who the minister is. He needs to carefully study and understand the word of God. And so God tells Haggai, your job, Haggai, you take my word to Zerubbabel, who's the political leader, and you take my word to Joshua, who's the spiritual leader. And obviously, they didn't know this on their own. I'm convinced that's an important thing to see here because that is true when it comes to any dispensation. There's a lot of things in the Bible you can understand by reading, but there are some other things that get complicated. You're not going to be able to figure them out unless you're taught. I mean, that's God's system. That's not my system. Paul told Timothy, the things committed to you, you teach the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So you need someone to teach you directly and accurately. And Haggai was that guy. It was his job to go to Zerubbabel and his job to go to Joshua and teach them. And it's the political and religious leadership who are going to be held highly accountable to the Lord. I tell you, they don't have a clue how accountable they're going to be to the living God because they're accountable to see to it that the constituency is led into a right understanding of the Lord. Political and religious leaders will be held in high regard. The third message is Haggai was to speak directly to the people. He says in verse 2, and to the remnant of the people. So not only do political leaders need the word of God, not only do religious leaders need the word of God, but so do the people. You know, sometimes people will take the position, well, the children, they don't need to be there hearing warning messages from God. Well, let me tell you this. There isn't a child that's too young to die. And we've done memorial services for children at young ages. They need to hear the word of God as soon as they can hear it. God's people were the people back in Jerusalem, and they needed to hear the word of God. I mean, these were people in general who made up the nation. Men, women, children. They needed to hear the word of God. They needed to understand it. That's what people need when they go to the place of worship. That's what they need when they go to church. They need to go there to be fed the word of God. They don't need to go there to be entertained. They need to be fed the word of God. They need to hear that if they will purpose to take the word of God and apply it to their lives, and they apply it accurately to their lives, God's going to bless them. Now, all of these people, regardless of their status, needed to hear the same message. That's the interesting thing about this. God tells Haggai, you take that message, you take it to the highest political leader, you take it to the highest religious leaders, and you take it to the people. 
from the president to the vice president to the senators and the congressmen to the governors and mayors, they need the word of God. The religious leaders and ministers need the word of God. All people need to hear the word of God. doesn't matter who they are, where they're from. They can be rich or poor. They may live in a mansion or live on the street. They can be red, yellow, black, brown, or white. All of them need the word of God. You take the word of God to the people. Hey, guy, that's your job. You do that. That's his third message. His fourth message is ask them three questions. This gets fascinating in verse 3. Who's left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? How do you see it now? And does it seem to you like nothing in comparison? Now, these questions are coming from God, and they are, as Richard Taylor cited in his commentary, a tactfully brilliant maneuver. These questions challenge people to make non-debatable observations, objective observations. And they're forced to admit the truth. These observations lead to logical, unavoidable conclusions. Question number one, who among you is left who actually saw the former temple? Over 400 years before Haggai ever said these words to the people, Solomon had dedicated a magnificent temple. A magnificent temple. In fact, it's never really been equal to what Solomon built in the seventh month of the year. So Haggai says, I want you to go back in your minds Remember back before 586 B.C. when the Babylonians came in here and tore that temple down? How many here saw it? Who among you were there and saw the temple? Now, the year he's saying this to them is 520 B.C. That's when he's making this little statement to them. So Haggai says, back up in your mind 66 years, you people that were there. You people that were back there in 586 B.C. before the Babylonians destroyed the temple, go back in your minds, those of you that saw it. Now, the point of the question is to stir memories of the people, to get them to recall and visualize what that temple once looked like. Babylon started deporting the Israelis in 605 B.C. That's when Daniel and his buddies were taken to Babylon in 605 B.C. in the first deportation. There were three main deportations of Israelis that came out of Israel by the Babylonians. And in 605 B.C., that deportation business started. Then the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. So what you have there is a 19-year gap of time, a 19-year gap of time when people are in Israel and they're walking by the temple, walking out of Jerusalem, and they're being relocated to Babylon. And so certainly there would have been some people during that time that walked right by that temple, looked at that temple, and worshipped in that temple. They now would have been probably 70 or 80 years old, and they would have seen it. In fact, we know when Ezra wrote his book some 15 years before Haggai wrote his, there were several who had seen that first temple, and when they got back and saw what it was like, they wept. You know, many of us who are older have seen a tremendous deterioration of this nation, and we certainly have seen a deterioration take place in the church. We've seen a movement away from God. We've seen a movement away from reverencing God. I mean, I would have never believed, if you would have told me this in the 80s, that we would actually see rock bands on a stage at a church. I would have said, you're crazy. We used to see that in nightclubs and bars in the 70s. You're never going to see that in church. That's where we're at. People don't think the same way anymore. Now, the fact that people were still alive who'd seen the first temple means... They'd survived the Babylonian captivity and just that thought. 
Man, we were taken captive to Babylon. Now we're back here. We're looking at the same spot we were taken from. Just that thought should have prompted them to want to obey God and worship God. And we who are here, who have survived all the chaos of life that we've survived to this point by the grace of God, that point alone should prompt the rest of us to want to focus on God and his word. We're still here. And there must have been a few who had seen the temple. Perhaps there was a show of hands. I don't know how he had the people identify themselves. He doesn't say raise their hands, but they may have. He said, who of you have seen the temple in its original glory? And it's questioned whether or not Haggai himself had seen it based on the fact he says, who among you, not who among us. But I think there's a good probability that Haggai is just presenting it to the people. Who of you saw this temple before this happened? So there's his first question. Who of you were there and saw it? Secondly, how does the temple look now? How does it look now? There was no one who could say, boy, boy, it really looks good now. You couldn't objectively look at what they're looking at right at this point when Haggai's there and actually honestly say, sure looks great. You know, as we get older, some of the memories begin to dim, but you could certainly remember this one. This second question is designed to get an eyewitness answer from eyewitnesses who actually saw it. You know, I used to listen to Mr. Miles. I could listen to him talk for hours about Lewis Berry Chafer and Dallas Seminary back in 1939. I can still remember conversations we've had on what Dr. Chafer was like, what the school is like. It's not the same anymore. I can tell you that from listening to his stories. It's not the same anymore. Oh, it may have more impressive buildings, but no one's going to equal Dr. Chafer. It doesn't look the same now. The third question is, doesn't it seem to you there's no comparison? He says at the end of verse 3, doesn't it seem to you like nothing in comparison? I mean, Haggai basically says, can you really compare these two? If you've actually seen that glorious temple, and now you're looking at mostly rubble, I mean, we don't even have it built and constructed yet. Haggai's point is, compared to what you once saw, you're right now looking at nothing. Now, comparisons can be discouraging and depressing, but they also can be convicting. Because by thinking about how the temple used to look, you would think that somebody would ask the question, what happened to it? Why is it so pathetic now? Nobody asked that question. The reason the temple looks so pathetic is because they would not obey God. They would not obey the word of God. So God said, I'm going to teach you a very serious lesson. I'll bring in a group and they're going to tear this temple right down. Now they have the opportunity to rebuild it and get back on track. To ask someone to compare a time when things were great with a time that things aren't so great can be a great way to get somebody back on track to the days of greatness. I mean, it's a good tool to use. But the truth of the matter is those people that are just always living in the past for their glory days are missing out what they ought to be doing in the present. Now, I want you to notice how verse 4 begins. But now, but now, the message that God is taking 
to Zerubbabel and to Joshua and to the people is, okay, the past is past. We can't do anything about that. But now you need to get going. And don't live in the past anymore. Don't live on past memories and glory days. You need to get going right now. And a critical key to getting out of that depression state is to refocus on God and his word and his will. And that's a critical key to this. So his third question is, doesn't it seem to you there's no comparison? His fifth message is, take courage, leaders and people. Now, here's the first imperative that shows up in the text. But now, take courage. Now, we're living at a time, ladies and gentlemen, when we hear almost every day, the America we know is gone. Okay, now you got that out of your system. The America we know is gone. Having said that, what are you going to do about it? Just night after night watch the news tell you that? Is that what you're going to do? God says, no, no, you take courage. And you take courage in me, and you take courage in the word of God. And the word courage, hazak in Hebrew, is one that's repeated three times. It's critical to this context. And God mentions all three different groups or objects that he mentions here who need this admonition. We can assume that all the people of God need to hear this when they're facing things that seem to be discouraging. They need to be courageous. They need to be strong. They need to be undaunted. That's what that word actually means. And the courage is found in God and in his word. That's the problem. Your courage is not found watching the news. Your courage is found in a relationship with God and in the word of God. And there are three specific persons or groups or objects that he specifically mentions need to have this courage. First of all, Zerubbabel, the political leader, needs it. You know, political leaders do need courage if they're not going to end up political weasels. They need to be courageous. I mean, every political leader needs to courageously stand up for what's right before God if he wants God's blessings. Now, if he doesn't want God's blessings, just do what you want to do. But if you want God's blessings, you have to courageously take a stand for what's right according to the word of God. This is aimed straight at Zerubbabel, the political leader. Then Joshua gives the same admonition to the religious leader. He needed to take courage. Joshua had a big job to oversee temple matters. It was his responsibility to rebuild the temple, but also reestablish temple worship. That's a big job. You can get discouraged, and you can get discouraged if you're a religious leader, if you're a minister. I mean, if you're a minister, for example, and you are looking at churches that have multi-million dollar budgets, and they're packing them in, Packing them in, and here you are trying to faithfully handle the Word of God, and you're looking at places that seem to be numerically succeeding in ways that are out in orbit. You can begin to become a little discouraged. You need courage to say, we're not going that direction. I don't care where they're, we're not going that direction. We're sticking to the Word of God. We're sticking to the doctrines of God. We're sticking to the reverence of God. It takes courage for that stuff. And thirdly, the entire congregation needs it. That's what he addresses there. You people, all you people need to take courage. All the people of the land needed to take courage. We need to take courage. Look, God expects us to be courageous people in the world in which you and I are living. You know, I was coming to the office this afternoon earlier, 
And there was a fawn, a little baby spotted fawn that was out on WX and it was just scared. It was just running. And I had to go slow because I didn't know what this thing was going to do. I mean, it's running along beside my car and I just back off. Then it runs in front of my car and then back and forth in my car. It's just running around, just totally scared. That's the way some people are. They're just running this way and that way. As if they're scared, as if they're frightened what's going to happen. They need to be courageous. And the courage is found in the Lord. The courage is found in the Word of God. So what Haggai says to the people is, take courage, be courageous. Secondly, is sixth message, take courage and work. There's command number two, work. Take courage is command one. Command two, work. Get to work. Having courage means you get to work. Means that you go forward for the Lord. Do something. Don't let things stop you from doing something. Stay focused on getting something done. It takes courage to do that, especially if you're trying to get done something that's consistent with the Word of God when most around you don't even care if they even know the Word of God. But it takes courage to do something for the Lord. We're responsible in our Christian lives to do a work for the Lord. And that works itself out in various contexts, various situations of life. We have the responsibility to obey the scriptures and do a work for the Lord. It takes courage to do it when people around us don't do it. His seventh message is take courage because I'm God and I'm with you. That's what he says, I am with you. When we are focused on the word of God and we're focused on trying to obey the word of God, we can know without a doubt God is with us, and that is where we find the greatest strength and courage we can ever find. And that point's important to see. The thing that can give God's people courage, the thing that can give them strength, is knowledge of the fact God is with them. The courage is not found in ourselves. It's not found in our political or religious leaders. You're not going to get courageous watching the news. Your courage is found in knowledge that God is with his people. And he identifies himself as the I am, and he also identifies himself as the Lord of hosts. He wants his people to know, I am the sovereign God. I can do whatever I want to do. I'm sovereign over things in the world. I'm sovereign over things in the heaven. I'm sovereign over things all over everywhere. I control everything and everyone. He says, I want my people to understand, you stay focused on me. You stay focused on my word and my will, and I'll be with you, and I'm declaring this to you. His eighth message is, command number three, don't fear. He says in verse 5, And for the promise which I made when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. Now Haggai is a prophet, and he's going to present some prophecy. You'll see some amazing prophecy in just a minute. And God says, you need to realize my spirit has been with you as a nation since day one when I brought you out of Egypt. I've been hovering over you, and I'm still with you. I mean, the reason why Israel right now is in existence and the reason why there's a remnant of people in Israel, in Jerusalem, and in the Israeli area is because God has been with these people. I mean, I had a Jew say that to me. I've told you this before. I had a Jew actually say this to me. I just don't understand why we're still in existence. I said, God, there's your answer. God has kept you in existence as a nation. And that is exactly what God is saying here. And he's basically saying, I'm with you. And I want you to know this. If you're focused on me, I'll be with you in this covenant relationship all the way to the kingdom. 
Which brings us the ninth message. God will eventually shake the world and establish Israel in the land, and they will worship in his temple. Now, this is an eschatological prophecy in verses 6 to 9, and we're going to go through these prophecies. And I think the reason why God interjects this prophecy that now launches us into the future here is he wants these people to understand, look, you may see this as just an insignificant assignment to get this temple up. He said, you don't understand the ramifications of what's going to ultimately happen here. You don't understand what God's going to do in this temple, what his plan is. You play a key role right now in obeying me and getting this temple rebuilt. You have no clue as to what I'm going to do in the future. This is going to be a critical part of a prelude to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And there are seven predictions that are made here, and I want to show you the predictions. Number one, God will shake the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and the dry land, and that will happen in the tribulation. Verse 6 says, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and also the dry land. Now, this passage is interpreted in the book of Hebrews. So we don't even have to guess what the interpretation is. So I want you to go over to the book of Hebrews for just a moment. Go over to Hebrews chapter 12. Because the writer of Hebrews gives us the interpretation of this text. Which is beautiful. Because then some minister doesn't have to try to come up with an interpretation. We'll just let God interpret the passage. He cites this very passage we just read. In Hebrews chapter 12, I want you to notice verse 25, and we'll just go right down through these verses. Hebrews 12, 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who's speaking, for if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will they escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. Now here's our quotation. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more, I'll shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. That's a quote coming right out of Haggai. Now watch what verse 27 says. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So what we learn from the interpretation of Hebrews is what God is saying here in Haggai is there's coming a day in the future when I am going to shake, literally shake the heavens and the earth and the dry land and the seas, and that will be something that will lead to me establishing my kingdom. I'm not the one coming up with that interpretation. That's Hebrews giving you the interpretation. That will be a prelude to Jesus Christ returning and setting up his kingdom on earth. So what he's basically saying to these Israelis who are listening to Haggai speak, literally, he's saying, you don't have no clue how big a program is being worked out here with you just getting this temple built. The second prediction is God will shake all the nations of the world in the tribulation. Verse 7, I'll shake all the nations. That's what he says. I'm going to shake all the nations. The third prediction is all nations will bring their wealth to Israel. He says in verse 7, and they will come with the wealth of all nations. Now, we went through that when we went through Isaiah. We know from Isaiah chapter 60 that God promises there will come a day when that king will be in Jerusalem and all nations of the world will be bringing their wealth to give it to Israel, realizing Jesus Christ is there reigning. Well, that hasn't happened yet. 
It's never happened anywhere in history. This is a prophecy of what is going to happen. That's why Haggai is a prophet. His fourth prediction is God's temple will once again be filled with God's glory. In verse 7, he says, I will fill this house with glory. This again will be a place that will feature the glory of God and the person who will be there to actually display the glory of God will be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The fifth prediction is God has all silver and gold. Now that may seem odd in verse 8. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. But you have to remember the context of all of this. The context of this is that the Jewish people here were experiencing real lean times because of a judgment of God. And what God is inferring to them is, look, you put me first, you put my work first, and you put my will first and my word, I'll see to it, I control the silver and the gold. I mean, I'm the one who controls the economy. I'm the one who controls that stuff. I'll see to it that you're blessed. You'll experience great blessings because I will decree it and determine it because I'm the one who has it all. The sixth prediction is in the end, the latter glory will be greater than the former glory. Verse 9, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. Now, this is interesting in view of Revelation. And we're going to see a fascinating text Sunday night. Because we're right in the heart now of the stuff that's going at Israel in the book of Revelation. That temple is going to be rebuilt. As we presented last Sunday night, there's a major movement right now to get that temple rebuilt. And that will be the third temple that will be built because you had Solomon's temple, then it was leveled and rebuilt here. And then you have the temple that was destroyed by the Romans, and that's going to be rebuilt. And we believe it's going to be right shortly after the rapture when that is going to be literally rebuilt. And you'll see these two prophets Sunday night that are actually in Jerusalem They're right there when that temple's being built. They're overseeing this. They're looking at this, monitoring this. They're telling people exactly what's going on here. Well, when this new temple is going to be rebuilt, Jesus Christ himself will be back at that temple. And I don't suspect that that temple that's going to be rebuilt at the beginning of the tribulation will come close to having the glory and glamour that the temple of Solomon originally had. As we pointed out Sunday night, just the dimensions of that Solomonic temple, it would take a while to get that structure up. But the basic core of the temple, you could get up relatively quick. So if we think that through, and here's a statement, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. What does that mean? Because the temple you're getting up isn't going to be better than what Solomon put up. What does it mean? It means Jesus Christ will be there. Jesus Christ in person will be at that temple, making this temple the greatest temple that's ever been in existence. It'll be greater than any of the previous temples that have ever stood. It will be spectacular when Christ is there. And finally, Israel and the temple will be a place of God's peace. Notice verse 9. And in this place, that is in that house, in the temple, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. There's no peace at the temple site right now. I mean, that Dome of the Rock and those Arabs prevent peace from being there. I mean, like one person said, if we decided tonight we're going to go over there and start building the temple, those Arabs would shut that and we'd have war on our hands. But God says, I want you to know there will come a day when there's going to be peace. There'll be peace between God and Israel. There'll be peace between God and 
the nations, and there will be peace between man and man, because God will do that work. So what Haggai is basically telling these people is there's a lot at stake here on you obeying God and rebuilding this temple. There's a lot on the line here. You need to take courage, and you need to get this job done. Now, when you compare yourself to others, you may look at them and think, I'm just so insignificant. I mean, I'm just so insignificant, and I just don't have a lot that I can offer. But when you do a work for the Lord, you may not realize future greatness. You may not even begin to grasp the totality of what you're doing because God's in it. I'm convinced that most of these people that were going up to the mountain getting boards, I mean, they're cutting down timber. Remember, that was their assignment. Go up there and get timber and bring it down here so we can rebuild this temple. I mean, they probably, most of them, had no clue as to the eschatological significance of this. They had no connection in their minds to what God was going to do with this spot one day. So what God expects us to do when we don't know everything that he's doing is to courageously keep our focus on the word of God, accurately understanding it, accurately applying it, and doing his will. We may not be able to go back to the good old days, but we certainly can go forward to great glorious days. And that's the message Haggai gave to the people of Israel in those first nine verses of chapter 2. Well, our time is way gone tonight. I want to thank you for coming. Good night. The Lord bless you.